Welcome to GivePod, Greater Vancouver's business podcast, unpacking the challenges and opportunities facing our region. I'm Bridget Anderson, President and CEO of the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade. This is the fourth episode in our series of interviews with Vancouver mayoral candidates. Today, I'm speaking with NPA candidate Fred Harding. Fred, thanks for making time today. I'm really pleased that you have me on. Thank you so much for the time. So you might not be necessarily as well known as some of the other candidates, but you're not entirely new to the political scene in Vancouver. You ran for mayor in 2018. But, you know, I don't know that a lot of people in Vancouver might know that much about you. So let's maybe start at the beginning. Why are you interested in becoming the mayor of Vancouver? Well, you know, th- this this is a, a crime election. This is, this is an election that's going to be run on public safety, and, and we have a public safety crisis in Vancouver. I think everybody is aware of that. And public safety is what I do. So for those that don't know me, I have a background in policing. I was a police officer for over 30 years. So now what does that mean and why does that make me qualified? So let's talk about the public safety issue and the crisis that we have in Vancouver. I'm the only mayoral candidate who's ever taken out a team of terrorists. So the terrorist that I took out was a uh, a team that are still in prison, I'm sure. They got very, very lengthy prison sentences. I worked on the national security level. I worked at community policing, which is one of the fundamental things I did in my policing career in the UK. I uh, moved to Canada and I started policing in uh, on the North Shore of, of uh, Vancouver. And there, I, as a supervisor, I, I led uh, a new initiative into the first of its kind integrated First Nations police unit. So I was working uh, and I instigated a police unit that uh, polices reserves across the North Shore. And actually now it's, it's spread in throughout the province. And I understand that people want it throughout Canada. That's one thing, but doing that is where I was taking out drug houses and drug dealers. I worked on the Picton murder investigation. Uh, my, my breadth of being able to tackle crime and the public safety issue and restore confidence to the street, it's what I do. I think all of us are, are really sad to see the state of Vancouver as it is and the lack of leadership. And I want to bring leadership back to the city and uh, create an administration that has a leader at the forefront. Clearly a lot of achievements uh, given your policing background. Um, one of the other elements, though, in our public safety concerns in, in the city of Vancouver really involves mental health uh, as well. And you mentioned the opioid crisis, but homelessness as well. So what are some of the things that you would do as mayor to address these issues? So on, on homelessness, we, we have to tackle this in a way that's going to be uh, responsible and that everybody can have a, a, a have confidence that it's going to be tackled uh, sensitively. So look, we, we've got a, a plan and I, and I have a plan that's going to unfold where we're going to see we're going to use uh, the criminal code and we're going to use case law to resolve the issue. When I talk about criminal code, I want to start off with case law. We have uh, some some uh, case law that is is reasonably uh, local. So the two actually refer to the Musqueam. 2% of our population is indigenous. 25% of the homeless population is indigenous. And I know I can compel the government to um, handle that handle their uh, fiduciary responsibility. And I know I can compel them to do that and actually prioritize the, the indigenous people first. Are you talking about changes to the criminal code or? No, no. No, I'm talking about using case law. So a case law that I'm going to refer to is Regina Viguerin. And I don't and I was I didn't want to get into the technicalities, but but it's it's important that, that you know what I'm talking about. It's important people know that mm-hmm. I know what I'm talking about. 
So Regina V. Guerin is the first one, and that is actually refers to a golf course, believe it or not. But that set the principle that the government has a fiduciary responsibility for indigenous peoples across Canada. So what does that mean? They have a responsibility to protect and care and make sure that their welfare is managed. The second one is coincidentally also a Musqueam case, and it's Regina v. Sparrow. And that referred mm -hmm. to, uh, it was a fishing case. Mm -hmm. But what that did is set the case law that the indigenous issues will be prioritized above other cultures. So people can say, well, why, why, why? Why, why are we going to do this? And I'm going to tell you, because it's going to be for the benefit of the city. So if I can compel the, the, the federal government to take responsibility uh, for paying for and being obligate and, and, and seeing through on their obligations, then we're going to be able to treat, service and house 25% of the people. And I mean it like this, Bridget, is that you and I have to pay our taxes. We don't want to pay our taxes, I'm sure, but we're obligated to pay. There's no, there's no way you can escape it because we must. That's the same principle I'm going to use for the government's pay. Uh, very quickly, there's 10% of the people there, uh, uh, veterans who fought in a foreign war. We all know that the government got a responsibility for, for housing and taking care, and they're on the streets homeless. From there, we move into um, the, the the case from Abbotsford, where the judges, Judge Justice Hinkson said that you have to have shelter, or if there's no shelter, you can stay on the street between uh, 7 p.m. and 9, 9 a.m. So if we can provide enough shelter spaces, there is no reason for tents to be on the street. So it sounds to me like this is a pretty steep hill to climb, though, and requires some um, federal cooperation on this. Um, but you do have a, a defined approach. One of the other issues that we've spoken to the other candidates about is housing and a housing affordability, um, recognizing that uh, we have a, an acute problem in Vancouver, and the city does play a role in adding to those costs, whether it's permitting delays, uh, licensing, zoning. What what do you see as uh, some of the approaches that you would take in regards to solving the housing affordability issues? Okay, so some of the approaches we're going to take are going to be similar to some of the other parties. I just want to go back to one comment you just made in terms of the, the homelessness issue is I don't want to see it as a steep hill to climb. I really don't, because what it what it all it's going to take is leadership, and what we've lacked in that issue is leadership on taking responsibility for it. So you, I'm going to take responsibility to make sure it happens and, and compel the government. So that that's the first part. In terms of what we're going, to I would do, just say it sounds easier than it is compelling any uh, level of government. So, so it so it's talk is cheap, right? Talk is cheap, and we have to be judged on our actions and our and our results rather than what we say. But but I'm a police officer. I'm a former police officer who had result after result after result, and that means that I was able to bring in things that were historical. The Integrated First Nations Unit had never been done before. When I set out to tackle uh, working with the Indigenous people, I was told, "Don't don't bother." It's some people have tried it before, but now ten years later, the unit is still surviving and thriving, and as I say, wants to be copied. And I also did the same uh, in bringing in a historical unit that had never been done before on uh, intimate partner violence and working with the highest level of um, violence against women. So I, so that's why I talk in terms of the confidence I have that this can happen. I, I'm not, I'm not afraid of taking on the the bigger guy. I'm not afraid of taking on the government because people would be looking for a leader to do that and not somebody who finds excuses why not to do it. So that's important. So let me just please go back and answer your question on, on, on housing, because these are really important issues for how people uh, in the city are trying to cope and understand what the next administration will bring in. So we're going to have permanent uh, um, uh, minimum 
uh, permit waiting times. So what does that mean? Right now, we're going from seven years of building a house from conception to completion. It is intolerable, it's inconceivable, and it's just not sustainable. So we've got, we're losing developers. Developers are giving up on Vancouver. Those who had eight projects uh, four years ago have got zero projects. They're moving to Seattle. They're moving to Arizona. Uh, even the North Shore, North Vancouver, offers a such a quick uh, permit time. So we can do better. We can do a lot better. We're going to um, aim at supply targets. So this is... We know what's coming down. We know what's coming in five years. We know what's coming in four years. We know what's coming in three years, but we have to start making sure that we're building to that capacity. And we're going to use the private sector. The public sector cannot possibly provide the housing that they need without turn, making the, the city go bankrupt. But we're going to be looking to the, to the private sector, bringing them to the table, and we're going to do something else as well, which is create a flat rate CACs. CACs have been crippling the city. It's been crippling the way that people do business. This is one of the driving forces that's driving developers away. If they have certainty in what those CACs are going to be, then I know that they're going to, it's going to be a system that they can work with. It's going to be a system that will work, will develop together. But by flat rate CACs, it means that there can't be any more arm twisting. They can't, the, the developers are not going to have to negotiate for months or years and years to know what the CACs are going to be because every single developer will know what it will be. And, I, and one last thing I want to say on the CACs and is that if you're going to do, if you're going to build uh, rental housing and uh, towers of rental housing, then your CACs are going to be next to nothing. And here's the reason why, is because the, the actual supply of rental housing is already a community contribution. And no one's ever looked at it like that, but the developers will understand how they make money. The people are going to see the, the units that they need. And remember, this isn't about building uh, first, uh, first uh, time buyer uh, accommodation. Housing affordability is at every single level of the market. So people who come to Vancouver and they're making $120,000 a year are sharing apartments, right? And they're paying five grand a month or six grand a month for a one or two bedroom apartment, not sustainable. We need to create certainty in the market. And you say um, every level of government, I'm certain that, uh, you know, as you're talking about housing affordability, it will also require strong relationships with the province and with the federal government as well. Um, I want to ask you about other municipal issues. We surveyed our members and they talk about the municipal issues that impact their uh, their bottom line and their perception of dealing with the city of Vancouver and citing red tape, permitting delays, licensing uh, continues to be the biggest thorn in their side. I know the city of Vancouver uh, that staff have taken action through the task force to address this, but clearly our members are saying much more needs to be done. So how would you tackle those challenges? So we, we, we've got to all work together to reduce the red tape. We, we know that. And again, that the permitting wait times are, are just intolerable. So I think every mayoral candidate, and I remember four years ago, every mayoral candidate was talking about reducing permit wait times. So that's something that, that's really uh, bothering people. And that's not just building houses. That's people who are, are, are having to walk away from businesses because they can't get the business mm -hmm. licenses, right? Uh, I, I know of a um, four years ago when I, when I was doing this is there was a, a restaurateur who had people lined up. He wanted to employ, had money to invest. He walked away from the business because he just couldn't get anywhere uh, with the city. So 
that's not something that we can tolerate as a city. So we have to really work on that. I want to make sure that when it comes down to permits, uh, permit for housing and, and creating business, we're going to have, uh, we can use AI, we can use uh, digital systems. We're going to make it much more effective so that if you want to build a property and it goes through a, a digital system is that it was going to tell you immediately if it's going to comply with, with the building zones. Um, <clears throat> We have, sorry, on, on, on that one, I, I, ju I just drew a blank because that we, the, there's 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 other aspects that I, I want to cover, but uh, as, as we talk, it'll come to me. I, I should have made mm -hmm. a note as we were talking. But you're talking about um, committing to streamlining the process and to making sure that there's also a shorter timeline. Uh, I have a question about the way that you were nominated by the NPA, oh. because John Cooper was going to be the candidate until quite recently. And there's been a little criticism around the way that he was appointed. And now that you're the candidate, how would you respond to those criticisms? Well, I don't know who's criticizing, right? John, John, because John Cooper, you know, he walked away. So if there's criticism, then the criticism has to be leveled at John Cooper. And, I, and so I don't know why somebody would criticize. The criticism around the process of the appointment, the nomination through the NPA. Okay, you know, just so, more transparency about the process. Yeah, I, you know, I, I can, I can talk about, I can talk about my, my appointment. So my, my point was simply, uh, John had walked away, uh, I, and I know everybody knows that I was in China when this happened, and, I, and I'm happy to talk about that as well. So when it came to me, of course, it, I, I didn't immediately say yes. I wanted to know that there was a great team in place. I wanted to know that this was a winnable, this was a winnable election, and certainly based on on what we're fighting, which is the lack of leadership. Um, the dystopian circumstances we're finding ourselves in in, in the city, and uh, uh, and, a, and a mayor who's basically abandoned his his oath of office and walked away from his responsibility of public safety. I know this is an entirely winnable election. What's really important is that the campaign team is just a superb campaign team, dedicated professionals who really know what they're doing. They understand numbers. They understand how to campaign. But here's what's really important is that the NPA has gone through change and the team that they've brought to the, they're going to run for council, going to run for school board, um, going to run for parks, that the council team I think is probably, and I, and I say this was a hint of hyperbole, one of the best council teams the city is going to see in probably 20 years or 30 years. They're really, really highly professional. We've got business people, uh, we've got skills trade people, uh, we've got um, like an outstanding leading uh, female entrepreneur, and we have uh, public safety professionals as well. So that's been track and, and data analysis for the Vancouver Police Department. So the team that's going to be um, that's going to be assembled or that has been assembled will really, really make a huge difference for the city, for safety and for business. So you're um, confident the process was transparent and fair? I, I, as far as far as I'm concerned, certainly where I'm talking about my process was as transparent and fair as it could be. So so if we're talking about criticism, um, you did primarily live outside of the country. Uh, you mentioned China, and that was when uh, beginning, I think, around 2018, after you ran for mayor last time, um, but deciding to come back to Vancouver. Um, and some may say, well, you know, these were four important years that maybe you don't have a, a finger on the pulse of what's really been going on in Vancouver in the last four years. So why could why are you walking back into the city now to run now? 
Okay, so let, let's let's be clear about who I am and, and my and, and what I bring to the city. So I came, to, I actually came to Vancouver in 1997. So I've been here for 25 years. So when people are asking, so why were you in Vancouver? Why were you in Beijing? And the reason I was in Beijing, and again, it's it's not it's not a secret, is Vancouver is where my wife and I want to be. Uh, Vancouver is where we'd actually set up our our. Uh, base. Uh, my children were raised here. And it's also important to know that I've always paid my taxes here. My car still registered here. My bank accounts are here. My medical is here. So it's really important. The reason I was in China is because is my wife was chronically sick and she uh, came uh, extremely close to, to dying. Uh, China was where we had to go and get the treatment. She actually became very sick during my last campaign. And, uh, and the campaign ended on the 20th, and she had to leave the country about the 23rd and seek urgent medical treatment. I brought her back uh, three months later to see, we saw probably 10 doctors, and we couldn't find out what the issue was. By the time we realized what it was, we'd gone back to China to get more treatment. She was stage four terminal, and she was on her way out. So that's the reason I was in China. So it wasn't that uh, I was holidaying there or anything like that, as, as my wife was... Um, uh, seriously ill and uh, as i say very, very gravely ill and close to death and i'm really pleased to say you know i i put this uh, terrible slant on it um she has made what her doctors call a miraculous recovery so if you saw my wife now you'd never know that she was so close to dying um my wife is the strongest willed woman i have ever met in my life she is just a powerful mental capacity and i know that that's what brought her back from the brink but so that's the reason I was actually out of Canada. And of course, along came COVID. My wife still can't travel uh, simply because of her condition. She can't get the vaccine. And, and uh, it's only just last week they've lifted vaccine restrictions for coming to Canada. So she's making plans to come here now. So that's- Well, I'm very glad to hear. I'm very, yeah, very I'm, glad I'm to too. hear that she is uh, on the mend. And hopefully she will be joining you in Vancouver uh, before October 15th. So with a couple of minutes left, um, Fred, tell us and tell the listeners, you know, what is your vision for the future of Vancouver? Okay, look, I'm just going to touch on one other thing for that is somebody who lives outside of the city, someone with my experience of living in China. Uh, th this is a this is a city with a 40 percent population of Cantonese speaking and Mandarin speaking people. Right. So, of course, I bring uh, like more cultural knowledge and uh, more cultural uh, awareness of, of everything that I've learned in my time away. So my time away wasn't wasted. It makes for a better man. My vision of Vancouver is we're looking at one where people can have confidence to walk down the street again, where, where the streets are reclaimed from violent uh, elements, which are, we're seeing these uh, monstrous attacks, race hate crime, uh, stranger on stranger attacks arising in break-ins in homes now that the pandemic's over, car thefts, break-ins. So we're looking at a new leadership level, a crisis level of leadership that's going to make sure that you walk down the street at any time of the day or night and you feel confident to walk down the street, where we're actually taking the people who are causing these issues out of society and out of circulation. We're going to bring in, we have a 19-point crime plan, and I would ask people to look at that. We don't have time to talk about it, but there are, th there are things in there such as uh, no-goes and making sure that people are not allowed. Violent people will not be allowed into Vancouver and we're going to use the courts to enforce all of this. So my vision is, is a city where everybody is, I don't want to be utopian, but I do want to say people will learn a respect for each other and people will feel safe, confident, and their families are going to be safe and confident here as well. That's really important. 
Just Fred, one last question then on this 19 point plan. Are are you talking about forcibly removing people from the streets? Uh, no. If no, absolutely not. So what I'm talking about are no-goes. So if you go, if somebody goes shoplifting in London drugs and they're caught maybe three or four times, you can get what's called a no-go. So the court will impose a no-go that you cannot go into any London drugs in British Columbia. What I want to make sure is that the city is enforcing a no-go on violent offenders, people who commit violent crimes, people who commit uh, violent assaults on strangers, people who procure children for a sexual or violent purpose, and people who commit uh, violent intimate partner violence on their partner, is I want to make sure that they understand when my administration comes in, that they will not be allowed within the confines of the city of Vancouver if the courts, if the courts mandate it. And I will make sure that we've got some legal uh, experience sitting in the courtrooms, making sure that it happens. It's not difficult, it's not impossible, and people may think it's a, it's a, uh, a stretch too far. I promise you, we put no-goes on people all the time. Uh, criminals that come from Surrey have a no-go into the city of West Vancouver unless they go into the ferry or something like that. There will be charter fights. But we're prepared to fight the charter on this. We're prepared to make the people of Vancouver safe. And so I said one more question, but I have been prompted for no. asking one more because uh, I know I do understand the concept of no-go. I think uh, the the question I think in many people's minds is then what do you do with those people who are currently uh they're living on the streets or they are the ones who are the perpetrators when it comes to some of these uh, acts of violence. And so how do you get them treatment and help? Is okay. that part of the plan as well? So, so I, I, I want to be clear is that I'm the downtown east side is is what is only a small component of the size of Vancouver. Everybody appreciates right. that. Yeah. And so what I'm talking about is a citywide. I want to make the city safe, not not the downtown east side core. I want to make the city safe because nobody's safe. People are being attacked in Arbutus. People are being attacked in Kalani. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, this is not related to the downtown east side and people are being broken into in those areas. And, and of course, there's domestic violence in all of those areas. I want to make the city safe. So when we're talking about what's going to happen with the people on the downtown east side, again, we're going to be relying on the courts. If I can get a no-go for a person who commits a violent offense in the downtown east side and they're homeless, that's going to be an issue for the courts to decide. But we're going to like, we, we, we can't be soft on crime. Right, we can't be soft on what's going on. We've got a, a young man making minimum wage had his throat cut ten days ago. Right, this can't be allowed, and we can't be saying, "Oh, well, we have to now start being empathetic to what's going on here." I grew up in poverty. I, I grew up in in social housing with nine siblings and, and a single parent family. We didn't resort to robbery and we didn't resort to crime. So I'm going to say it's not an excuse. People can use it as an excuse, but I'm an example and my family's an example of those. We fought through hard times, like really hard times. And we we turned out okay, you know, but but it's I'm not going to fall back and say, look, we and I we do have to understand the, the situation that people are in because it's everybody gets there in, in a different circumstance. But what we need right now is we need strong leadership. We need somebody that's going to be leading this city and making sure it's safe. And there are some people who are going to be hard done by, but those people who will be hard done by are, we're talking about violent offenders, not offenders, not, not people who are shoplifting, not people who are selling something on the street that they shouldn't, but people who commit violent crimes. So I want to make a distinction on the, on the level that we're talking about. Those are the people we want to exclude from the city of Vancouver.
Okay. Thank you for clarifying that, Fred. And you're right. There would There's not enough time to go through your full election campaign. This was uh, meant to introduce you to some, some folks uh, who would be listening in the business community. And I really appreciate you taking some time to speak with us. I, I really appreciate the time. It, it's a hard subject, and I, and I wish I had some jocular things in there, but but these are issues that are really uh, concerning to the business and, and to the public, and so I'm, I'm really grateful for the time you gave me. Thank you. Thank you so much, and I encourage everyone listening to get out and vote because municipal uh, elections matter and voter turnout tends to be low, so I encourage everybody to get out and vote on Saturday, October 15th. Thank you again. Thank you so much.